0: the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful,
1: the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all.
2: This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to
0: bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Kaldun Swice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. All right. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Logically Faithful podcast. I am thrilled to have my buddy, John Weasley, with me. Let me say the name properly, Professor. John D.
1: Yep, Weasley, it's like when your kid asked you for ice cream. You say, we'll see.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, after the fifth time, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, let me give you your proper introductions, brother. Uh, his areas of research and expertise lie broadly in the history of ideas, particularly related to religion and the American founding. I've heard John give papers at uh, different societies, uh, the ETS, uh, in addition to the uh, International Society of Christian Apologetics, a uh, wonderful work he's been doing. Um he published a Pittsburgh publication, 2011, under the title "One Nation Under God: An Evangelical Critique of Christian America." How dare you do something like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Look, true, uh, right. Much needed, much needed. Uh, Dr. Right. Wilson currently working on his second book from University Press. Uh, you want to touch on uh, touch base on what that is?
1: Yeah, or is so this the, third the book, book from University is on American exceptionalism, and it's a um, it it takes what I was doing in um, one Nation Under God, and One Nation Under God was the critique of Christian America, Christian nationalism specifically, the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so in that book, I argued that America was not founded as a Christian nation, but as a nation with religious freedom. Okay. So exceptionalism is a broader idea. Um, it is um, a more, uh, shall we say, more deistic uh, form of nationalism than Christian nationalism which is you know much more focused on Christ actually. Right, right, right. So exceptionalism is much more broader and exceptionalism really means that um, America is an outlier. Uh, America is different from other countries in terms of its founding, in terms of its um, ideas, mm-hmm. in terms of its uh, progression historically. Right. Um, but then it can also mean that America is uh, unique in the sense that it's especially chosen by God for a particular mission in the world.
0: Right, the city on a hill and the things that that we talked about with Reagan. Interesting. Okay, and I know that book has been published, was it last year or the year before? It came out in
1: 2015.
0: 2015. I heard it was doing very well, and you got some yeah. great reviews going forward on that, which yeah. was probably was for the for the interview here, in addition to our, our friendship going way back there, John. Yeah. Okay. Uh, currently, uh, let's see here. John, as I'm reading from your bio, has served studies as an educator, and you're also a pastor since 1992. Very nice. Yeah. As That's far right. as ministry to students, Dr. Uh, see has sought to use his love of outdoors to teach about the glory and faithfulness of Christ-oriented uh, orienting by night and by day, hiking, backpacking, is that gunning? Yes. That shaped his life since he was a boy. And he has found that people's understanding of the Christian life is made exponentially clearer in and through the world God made. Fascinating. Right. Well, we're proud to have you here with us, uh, uh, Professor. Thank you, brother. Uh, okay, uh, so let me get started here. Um, in addition to the bio here, can you help uh, you know our listeners? Um, the vast majority of my listeners being. Um, uh, most likely from a, a, a nun's category, uh, not necessarily one particular religion or another. Um, okay. uh, so they want to understand where you're coming from on this. Why do you continue doing what you're doing in the search for truth in the, uh, in the political arena? What, what, what drives you currently?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm a historian, really, uh, in the way that I think about uh, ideas. And so I'm interested in where do ideas come from? Where do we find where do we find the roots of ideas? And as an American, uh, you know, I'm a proud American. I'm a patriotic American. Um, my family has a long military tradition, uh, going back a long way. So I was raised in a family that was very patriotic and um, always expressed a lot of gratitude for you know what we have as Americans. Mm-hmm. And then I am a Christian as well. And so <clears throat> as an evangelical Christian. Um, committed to the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God, looking for the appearance, and the second coming of Christ. Um, and so, where where does America fit in in history? Where does America fit in what I believe is uh, God's plan to save save humankind um, through the atonement of Christ? Does America have a place in this? Mm-hmm. And as I a, a look around, um, one of the ideas that uh, has been pretty much advanced, you know, for the last 400 years, all the way back to the colonial period, mm-hmm. is that America is exceptional. And that has, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but broadly speaking, it it carries a lot of theological weight to it. Right. Um, we're exceptional in that, um, you know, has God chosen us? Has it, Are we a chosen people? Um, it, it would certainly seem that God has especially favored us, mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, we have a a, a track record of success uh, going back to the colonial period that is um, pretty, pretty remarkable, right? Right. In right, terms of, right. in terms of our colonial founding, in terms of our national founding, in terms of the um, development, the growth, the territorial expansion of our, you know, of our nation, but also the population expansion, the, uh, uh, the fact that America was founded between uh, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of sets America apart from other countries who are founded later founded after the Industrial Revolution gets going um, okay. anyway so has did God choose us? do we have some kind of divine favor mm. to account for all of this success that we've had as a nation and if God has chosen us then has he chosen us to be something or has he chosen us to do something and so people who have thought about America in terms of being divinely chosen have often said that we have a mission in the world to fulfill. And that mission is, you know, is has taken many forms over the course of the last two hundred years. The mission and, to mm-hmm. evangelize, the vision the mission to democratize, mm-hmm. the mission to civilize hmm. uh, fight evil uh, tyrants, you know, tyranny across across the world in, in many different forms. Um and so those, those um, ideas about American exceptionalism, where do those come from? Mm-hmm. Um, how theological are they? Uh, where do the theological ideas come from themselves? Um, I'm interested in those kinds of things. Those
0: are the things that continue to drive you because you'll never have an end, uh, an end of the fuel to fl- huh. in, for your fire. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay. Exactly. I remember I was reading David, uh, David McLeod's book on the 1776 fascinating yeah, right fascinating um a rendering of the war and the the, the providential hand of god moving to, to some of the ways of the, uh, the the revolutionaries were able to defeat the most powerful nation yeah. of the world at the time so i can see and understand what they see there's some kind of providence there and the hand of providence uh-huh. the word providence comes up in so many of the papers um uh, exactly in, in the early yeah. founding of the country um but in, in dealing with this issue uh in your opinion, how does one navigate the murky waters of politics today? Uh, you know, you have the two extremes now, the Trump advocates and the progressives who refuse to allow other points of view to even get a hearing. So you have the two extremes, the, the extreme left and the extreme right. But when you go right. that much of an extreme, don't you come back to a circle where they both produce some type of tyranny at one point yeah. or another? Um, h- how, how would you recommend mm-hmm. um, you know for the average person, the average student, uh, to to be fair in their rendering of understanding of the political system, are they to read or not read certain things and to avoid certain literature, to to cut themselves off? Uh, How do you, how do you, uh, any advice to that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. It's a great question. Um, I think um, one of the, one of the things Americans have have always been very good at is compromise. And we think of compromise as being a bad thing. Um, Especially those of us who are evangelical Christians, we think, oh, well, you don't want to compromise on your convictions, you don't want to compromise on your faith, and that kind of thing. And so compromise, uh, compromise can take a, a negative um, connotation in much of our discourse as religious people. But in terms of political compromise, that's one of the things that Americans have been historically very good at. Mm. But you can't have that if you have an, an uncivil discourse. You can't have compromise. And so historically, when Americans have failed to compromise, it's been... Because they have uh, gone to polar extremes in their views, and probably the most uh, you know the most salient example of that would be the civil war between eighteen sixty one and eighteen sixty five right um, you know the one time that Americans really could not find a way to compromise, and so the only the only way for them to resolve the issues was to uh, go to the battlefield and that's concerning because um, if Americans don't compromise, Americans are going to Uh, they're going to retreat to these polls, these extreme polls. And you're right. Um, While we have a democratic system, you'll still have some of the forms of democracy that remain, like elections. You'll still get to vote for your congressmen and senators and presidents and stuff. But um, while those forms remain of of democratic processes, you'll you'll have a tyranny. You'll have a democratic tyranny where... um, we trust the uh, national government to solve all our problems for us will look to the government to solve all our problems for us and when we have um, when we have disputes with, with fellow Americans we will uh, look to the government for redress and speaking of things to read about uh, you know Alexa de, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is a great book for this mm-hmm. because Classic. Tocqueville writes about, about how democracy is not necessarily a good thing democracy can lead and actually logically leads to democratic tyranny hmm and you know that's that's kind of where we're headed uh, these days um,
0: well I know reading up uh, Plato's Republic he talks about democracy being like this beast that has to be taken under control and you have to feed it the right things and give it what it wants otherwise it will turn around and eat you uh, so that's why yeah. he was opposed to democracy uh, and was more, right. more of a aristocratic type of system but we don't have a democracy yeah. per se we have a republic um, there's a difference right, um, right for the average person wouldn't know yeah. do you want to expand sure. a little bit on the difference between the democracy and sure. the Republic for our for our listeners?
1: Sure yeah so a democracy is uh, one man one rule uh, every every man, every person, every citizen has a vote <clears throat> and um, every person casts their one vote and everything is decided by a simple majority. So a perfect example of this would be the government of Athens ancient Athens where you had uh, you had an assembly of all of the uh, male, over the age of about 18 years old uh, citizens who cast votes over the big issues. You had a smaller council of 300 that would decide small issues like, you know, fixing the pothole on the road because that's not something that everybody needed to have a voice with. But in terms of going to war, that involved everybody. So all the citizens had an equal vote and everything would be a simple majority. But a republic is more representative um, and so what we have, we don't have a pure democracy. We elect representatives to represent uh, our, our voices in the federal government, in the Congress. Mm-hmm. They speak for us. And it's a democratic process that gets them elected. But once they're elected, when they're assembled together, the, the government, the, the laws are, are passed by the votes of the representatives and the senators. So we don't we don't get to vote for things that, you know, that are before the before the Congress. We send our representatives to do that. So okay. we have a democratic public. And um, that would be, the, be a,
0: the best of the worst systems. Is that what, that's, but that's that that what Churchill said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's yeah. Churchill. Right. It's just yeah. OK, so expanding on that and moving further on uh, down this line. Um, there are some people who try to avoid reading certain uh, types of news, such as maybe Infowars or things that kind of fueled a lot of yeah. the conspiracy theories and other extremes, like what you have the CNNs, the Al Jazeera's, the Fox News's. Right, uh, right. Should one be reading bits and pieces of this stuff and putting it yeah. together for some information? Or how do you How do you recommend uh, we get our yeah, sources? Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, I, I think that if you just are a consumer of one outlet for ideological reasons, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to you're going to be uh, Consuming news that is hopelessly biased. I mean, <laughs> all, all of these different outlets are biased, right? All the news reporting <laughs> is always biased. I mean, you're a philosopher. You know how this works, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. All of hermeneutics. There is no such thing as objective interpretation of anything, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. So, knowing that that's the case, if you receive all of your news from one source, well, it's like, it's like anything else. If you are only reading one author... What you know, whether it's politics or history or religion or sports mm-hmm. or literature or, or any particular discipline, if you're only getting your information, the perspective you're going to have. So yeah, I, I I recommend that people read the Washington Post, the New York Times, listen to NPR, watch Fox News, listen to the Fox News commentary, uh, read the Drudge Report, uh, get get your news from a lot of different sources. Um, both conservative and liberal, even Trump, and be able to draw conclusions. Even, even that, <laughs> even Trump. I mean, he, hey, he's the president now, so he uh, he he has to be listened to, whether we like it or not.
0: Yeah, amazing. Uh, there, it reminds me of uh, what you're talking about, uh, something that uh, W. Kelly, uh, Kate Clifford wrote uh, a number of years uh, of the Enlightenment period. He said, it's always wrong anywhere for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And he said this, I actually had this on my door for a while. If a man mm. holding a belief which he was taught in childhood or persuaded of afterwards and keeps down and pushes away any doubts which arise in his mind and purposely mm. avoids the reading of books in the company of men that call that into question or discuss it, and regards as impious these questions which can easily be asked without disturbing it, the life of that man is one long sin against mankind. And, and can you comment about wow. the importance of reading um, or being around that uh, diversity of views? Because, like you said, you, you're, you're going to funnel your point of view, and then you won't be able to yeah see the world as it is.
1: Yeah, you know, and another thing about that is, is that, you know, you and I are going to disagree. We're you and I we're good friends and we've known each other for a long time mm. and we probably agree on more than we disagree about but we are going to disagree at some point right yeah you're so going to be if wrong if sometimes you, i mean yeah exactly <laughs> i mean i've got to be wrong somewhere but like if you if you don't have diversity in the way that you receive news then you're not going to know how to deal with a situation when you're disagreeing with another person Especially if that other person is someone you don't know, you don't have a relationship with, and you do disagree on a profound level, on a visceral level. Well, I mean, you can't, if you disagree with somebody on a foundational level, the, the option of fighting that person, like in a fist fight, is not open to you. I mean, that is just not the way adults live in a civil society. Yeah. You, you, so with, with that no, no longer as, as an option. We have to be able to get along with each other somehow. So like, you know, a great example of this would be in, in an issue like uh, L- LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. issues, where I'm a Christian, I'm an evangelical Christian, and I believe that homosexual uh, activity is sinful. Uh, as far as I know, nothing can ever change that belief. I will always believe that until the day I die, because it is, it springs from a, it springs from a. Um, a conviction I have about the nature of who God is and how He created the world. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to back off of that. But then, but then my cousin, who is who is a, a lesbian, she believes with equal intensity
2: mm-hmm.
1: the the justification righteousness of her view. Hmm. We've got she and I. We're in the same family. We've got to live together somehow. Uh-huh. So if all I'm doing is reading Fox News and listening to Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and those people. And all she's doing is listening to Rachel Maddow, right, uh-huh. who is a lesbian too. Well, w- there's no way that we're going to be able to know how to have a discourse, have a discussion in a civil way. But if, if, we're, if we we're receiving our news and it's, it's, it's diverse, uh, the sources are diver- diverse where we receive our news from, then at least we can know how to disagree without being disagreeable and that's the key isn't it it's a great example you give yeah. uh, and being
0: able to um, uh, to navigate that alright let's yeah. move on to some of the, the topic of, of your book of course sure and I sent you a link to this video I don't know if you got a chance to watch it I, uh, I haven't okay so. so I want to play it here if you can link it yeah. on yours you can play it as well it's a short one and I'll, okay. let, I'll put the volume up so my listeners can hear it. This is from Jeff Daniels, who's from the oh, newsroom. Oh, I've seen this, yes. 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 So I want to play a little bit of that for my listeners, and I want to get your feedback on that, and we'll jump into the conversation right. again. So we have a young girl who comes up into a conversation and begins to ask him a, a panel question of, is America the greatest country in the world? And these other uh, panelists argue, yes, it's great. It's great because it's, we have freedom. Others argue, no, it's great because we have wide borders. It's great because we we have great technology. We have uh, great medicine, etc. cetera. Uh, we're able to have... um, Ability to uh, grow um, uh, our people and um, freedom is the main thing that keeps coming up. And uh, Jeff Daniels responds this way. Listen to this. The greatest country in the world.
2: Well, our Constitution is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. James Madison was a genius. Declaration of Independence is, for me, the single greatest piece of American writing. you don't look satisfied one's a set of laws and the other's a declaration of war I want a human moment from you what about the people why is it the not the greatest the country in the world professor that's my answer you're saying yes you're- Let's talk about it, Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of our paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money, it costs votes, it costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so smart, how come they lose it? Always. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we We were able to be all these things and do all these things, because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. Enough?
0: Okay, yes, that's enough. (laughs) <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, professor, you heard all that. Um, I actually yeah. had my uh, TA, my teaching assistant, do some research on Daniel's statistics. The vast majority of them checked out. That's actually correct. Um, yeah. You will give or take a few numbers here and there, given on your source. Uh, but sure. overall, the statistics are correct regarding education, healthcare, uh, technology, and things of that nature. Um, and regarding the dropping of bombs, I take a look at that as well. We dropped 26,171 bombs in the Middle East last year with our correlation partners. Right. Uh, is it making things better? There's a lot right. of questions in there and things you've said there that are firing up a lot of people. Uh, go ahead and I'll give you a chance to respond to that.
1: Well, um, there's a lot of things I could say about that. I'll, I'll start by saying, um, is, okay, the question, is America the greatest country in the world? Of course, in, the, in, the, um, in this clip, it's Americans that are asking the question. Hmm. That's right. Well, of course, Americans are going to say that they're the greatest country in the world. And Americans have every right to believe that about their country. No problem. I mean, if I were to ask you, do you think that your family is the best family in the world? What would you say? (laughs) Oh, of course. Of course. Now, would you be wrong in in thinking that?
0: In one sense, it's a subjective uh, pronouncement of my emotional state and, and my, um, my dispositions toward them and to honor them by saying that. But in another sense, I have no objective data to verify that.
1: Okay, exactly. That's exactly the point I'm trying to make, is that and from a subjective standpoint, your, your feelings towards your country, your outlook, your perspective towards your own country is, yeah, this is the greatest country in the world. This is my home. This is where I belong, right? It's very similar to the way that you would think about your family. You favor your wife over every other woman in the world. I better, right? <laughs> better. Yeah. Favor your children yes. over every other child. It's not that you want to kill everybody else's children. No. But, but you do favor your children over everybody else's because you're their father. Well, this is our home. This is our country. And in a sense, it's perfectly appropriate and not at all bad to say, I believe that my country is the best country in the world. Now, objectively speaking, if you measure the United States up against other countries, well, no. I mean, just like in the clip, he can reference um, a lot of ways in which you know, America does not measure up positively against other countries. And so there's another book uh, called American Exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Go figure, that's the name <laughs> of the book. Um, the subtitle is A Double-Edged Sword. Mm. And the name of the author is Seymour Lipset, L-I-P-S-E-T. Okay. What he means when he says a double-edged sword is that exceptionalism cuts both ways. There are things about America that are exceptional that are positive, and there are things about America that are exceptional that are negative. And he does reference mass incarceration in his book Mm. as one of the examples. And so when we talk about exceptionalism, it, it's one of those things. I mean, as a philosopher, you're going to appreciate what I'm about to tell you. Mm. We have to define that term. What do we mean when we say exceptionalism? It's a very ambiguous term. It's a very loaded term. Right. When we use the term, what, when you hear politicians use the term, obviously the politician is assuming that everybody has the same idea of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's very ambiguous. It, depending on what the context is, and depending on who you're talking to, it's going to mean something different to somebody else. So exceptionalism can have a sociological definition. And that's when, we, when we're talking about comparing America to other countries on, a, you know, on objective lines, like Jeff Daniels was doing in the clip. He's looking at exceptionalism in a sociological way, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And no, America's not the greatest country in the world if you're going to measure it by those things. Then you have to look at it Historically. There, okay, America is the only country in the world founded in the way that it was between the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution. That's a fact. That's a historical fact that makes America exceptional. America is the first country to be founded uh, in the way that it was, with the Declaration of Independence. It's the first constitutional republic, uh, it, it, At least since, at least since Athens. So it's maybe not the very first one. It's not a total innovation. No, but in the modern world, it is a total innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so historically, there are things we can say about America that are exceptional, that are factually exceptional. But then the trickier one comes in: what about theologically? And that's that's where I'm kind of addressing. I'm not looking at American exceptionalism from a sociological perspective. I'm looking at it more from his, from historical and theological concerns. Okay, is America chosen by God? I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> In order for us to know that kind of thing, God would have to tell us. Okay. Well, God, God hasn't told us that. So I don't believe that you can sustain that kind of a statement. I don't think you can say, sustain a statement that says, America has a special mission or a special destiny in this world. That sounds good. That sounds great political rhetoric. You know, it's a great political rhetoric. Reagan made that sound really attractive, and he convinced and persuaded a lot of people that that was true. Mm-hmm. But you can't Their providence is a theological uh, you know, subject, a topic. As a historian, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't read the signs of the times in history and say, well, that was God's providence. You don't know. You'd have to be told this. By, you'd have to have divine revelation to explain that to you. Well, couldn't Otherwise, we? Otherwise, you could say it might be. Hist- right. might, we might could say it's providential, but we can't be dogmatic about it.
0: Well, can't we say like some of the, um, for example, some of the battles during the Revolutionary War or um, maybe an exceptional win, like for example, Israel and the 67 war, which, um, you know, they defeated all the Arab nations around it. They called it definitely uh, one of the greatest wars I've ever had since the time of David. They say it would not have happened without the exceptional hand of God behind it. In one sense, of course, if God didn't want it to happen, it wouldn't have happened. Um, in one yeah. sense, that's true. And in another yeah. sense, c- can we say that this is a nation that has been blessed by God but can yes. I say that without demeaning and looking down upon others?
1: I think you can. There's there's certain like like we're saying this is a kind of a common theme in our discussion. There's certain senses in which you can say that God, a, a given event in history, is providential. One one of the ones I like to tell my students about: 1862, August, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia has left its camp on the. Uh, uh, just uh, south of the Rappahannock River and they're going to move into Maryland and they're going to invade Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. George McClellan the federal uh, general of the you know Union Army he has no idea what's going on. He has no clue what Lee's plans are, right? He has no idea what's going on. So Lee leaves his camp and begins his invasion, right? McClellan has no idea until some private Joe Snuffy is Sniffing around some of the uh, old Confederate camp, and he picks up a, a, a wrapper, a cigar a wrapper, of cigars, right? And he opens up the wrapper, and it turns out that the wrapper is General Lee's orders number nine. This is the entire strategy, the entire strategy, <laughs> of the campaign, right, uh-huh. of his right. invasion north. So it passes up the chain of command. It falls into the hands of McClellan. McClellan moves his army uh, to intercept Lee, and they intercept Lee at Antietam. And they fight the Battle of Antietam, and Lee is turned back, and his invasion is stopped, right? Okay, so that had to have been God's providence, right? Well, theologically, as a believer, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I can say that. Theologically, and as a believer, stemming from my my theological convictions, yeah. But as a historian, I don't know. I can't say that because... I have to be told as a historian. Used to be told this through special revelation. We know that, we know that the raising up of Cyrus mm-hmm. from Isaiah right. was an act of God's providence because we're told. But we would have to be told that that was an act of God's providence. Specific, dogmatic about it. So what? What can we say historically? Historically, we can say perhaps. I'm a Christian. I'm a historian. Perhaps that was god's divine interaction, intervention into that situation but as a historian i can't say with any amount of certainty that yes that was that was god's activity to save the union maybe because it's, another thing is, another uh, thing and i'll get you respond. one no, no. thing is i don't know that that's in god's ultimate plan to save the union right he okay, might so. still plan to rend the union he might still have that in his, in his mind. I don't know.
0: Okay. Right. Okay. In order for me to know that, I would need to be told. Go I see. Well, I'm thinking, um, do we really need to be told propositionally that things are uh, from the hand of God or providence? Can we just look at the results themselves? The fruits will bear it out. Propositionally, um, I met my wife, uh, f- fiance. We met, we, we talked, we got to know each other, we got married. I can say, looking back, that that was the hand of God in it. Um, uh, does he want us to continue to be married all our lives? It, I won't know all that till the end, of course, until after the fact. But I can look back after the fact that I did propose to her to say the hand of God was in there or the, it was providentially put together. Why can't I say that and, and stand my ground theologically about, let's say, my marriage without having been told directly from God through a prophet or some kind of uh, burning bush? I mean, do I really need that information? Why can't I stand up and say this nation is blessed by God and it's a special nation, why do I need it propositionally to be told to me?
1: Well, you you can say, I'm not saying you can't say that, I'm saying that when you say that you're speaking from your convictions as a Christian and you're speaking theologically, Mm -hmm. but you're not speaking historically. The task of a historian is not to try to discern God's hand in history. Hmm. That's not the task of a historian. So you would not be speaking to providence, as a historian, you'd be thinking about it theologically. Interesting.
0: Um, and, yeah, go ahead. So there's, there
1: are senses. There are senses in which hmm. you use this term providence, and okay. to be pre- when we try to be precise about how we apply and deploy that word, we need to be careful about how you know what sense am I using this word in?
0: Okay. Uh, for example, take historian Mike Lacona, who uh, travels the country talking about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Sure. And he does yeah. use historiographic uh, methods to do that. And, and his historiographic yeah. methodology has analyzed the, the secular facts for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead and has concluded that God, transcended God, raised him from the dead. Yes. He, he's seen the hand of God in a historic event. Would you say he's not doing history properly then?
1: No, I think he's doing great <laughs> history and great theology because... Mm-hmm. That that event that took place two thousand years ago is a matter of his, of history. It's the historical record.
0: Well, is it the founding of the nation of the country of the United States? The founding of historical record?
1: It is, but it's not in the scriptures. <laughs>
0: oh, okay, I see where you're getting at here. And people yeah. can start plugging it in there as the new promised land, so to speak. There you go. Yeah. And we could get into that, the topics on that one. Um, oh, <laughs> yes, we gonna get we fired up on that one. Uh, uh, recently, um, uh, yeah, last year I read a book called um, Why Liberals Always Win the Culture Wars Even When They Lose Elections by uh, Stephen yeah. Petro, where he argues um, uh, against this exceptionalism methodology or mentality. Uh, have you read or are you familiar with the book? That I have not read the book. I know
1: this, the person. I don't, the author. I
0: don't know the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, he argues that the, 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 the trend in culture is a progressive trend, which is part of the American methodology and the system right. itself to look out for the under, uh, underprivileged, whether they're Mormons, whether they're Catholics, whether they're Jews, and now recently, whether they're Muslims, and now add to that the LBG community, which has jumped on the bandwagon of that. And that they seem to be taking, taking stride. And the more conservatives fight against that, the more the, um, uh, that those those minority groups you know, are empowered to continue doing what they're doing, um, and but that's a whole different ball of wax, isn't it? That's a whole different discussion. Um, all right, let me go on to the next part of our question. Donald Trump's theme uh his theme song in his um, campaign and currently is "Make America Great Again" or "America first Matter of fact, just today he signed a pledge to uh, buy only American for for many different uh, uh, constituents and, and companies around the country to force. Uh, uh, the companies to focus on their internal uh, employees here from the country itself, rather than importing uh, employees. Uh, Is there anything wrong with this hypothesis? Is this, does it buy into the, um, the exceptionalism?
1: Um, Yeah. What's interesting about Donald Trump's uh, take on, you know, Donald Trump's on record. He rejects the term. He doesn't, he says he doesn't like the term exceptionalism. Uh, So he's, you know, and, and one of the things he does is he says, well, you know, Why should we think we're the greatest country in the world? I mean, the Russians don't think that, and they think they're, you know. So he has said he doesn't like the term exceptionalism. But make America great again and America first is exceptional. Uh, The thing that's interesting about Donald Trump's kind of take on exceptionalism and what makes him different from other presidents in the past is that there is no mention of God in the way that he sees America. hmm. Like He doesn't see America... Um, in any civil-religious framework at all, and that's not true for Barack Obama. Barack Obama was—I mean, he definitely believed in American exceptionalism.
2: Now he believed
1: in a in a in a brand of exceptionalism that's much like Stephen Prothero's um, book you just described. Mm-hmm. That the uh, you know the, the like Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe is bent toward justice and. You know, he looks back at American history and he sees that um, in American history there's there's more and more liberty, more and more equality uh, as, as uh, you know, time goes on. Um, but Barack Obama is also a confessing Christian. And so he uses a lot of God talk in his rhetoric about exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, someone like uh, George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. or George W. Bush rather, much more... Uh, exceptionalist language Ronald Reagan very civil religious president mm-hmm. but all the presidents all the way, going, all the way back to Re- Abraham Lincoln are very, um, very much uh, you know, civil religious uh, use very, a lot of civil religious language in reference to America Trump doesn't do that hmm. uh, and I think Trump is more of a pragmatist than he is an ideologue hmm. right? right so when he says make America great again he's not thinking in terms of ideology. So, in other words, he's not thinking religiously. He's thinking purely about pragmatics. He's looking at the number of warships we have on the high seas. Right, economics. He's looking at at the economics. He's looking at how many people have a job. Uh, So he's thinking in terms of pragmatic measurements, maybe like we went back when we, we talked a second ago, more sociological concerns.
0: Okay. All right. And of course, um, I, I know this is a surprise for some people, but the job of the president is to look out for the best interests of his country. I mean, yes. some people are just more explicit about saying that than others, isn't it? Yeah, okay. that's right. So bringing, the, the, bringing this back to the original question I asked you yeah. regarding um, America's greatness. Uh, Denise de Souza, in his book "What's So Great about America," lists a number of different things. Um, so does Michael right. Medved in his book as well, and Dennis Prager uh, writes yeah. a book about the wonders of America and the betterment of it. And uh, yep. In De Souza's book, it concludes like this: My conclusion is that America is the greatest, freest and most decent society in existence. It is an oasis of goodness in a desert of cynicism and barbarism. This country, once an experiment uh, unique in the world, is now the best hope for the world. And Dennis Dennis Prager argues very similarly in his book, Still the Best Hope, Why America, Why the World Needs America to Triumph. Um, These values that they're talking about um, seem to be ones that we take for heart, uh, ones that embolden the patriots. Of the country, and there's, there's some truth to what they're saying. For example, I recently looked up um, humanitarian aid worldwide. The United States is number one in humanitarian aid worldwide. Thirty-two point thirty-seven billion in aid. Um, we have missionaries, we have aid workers going out. By the every time there's an earthquake, a major catastrophe, sure. we have the number one people in the world going out there. However, I also looked at it, and as a, as a philosopher, I have to look at it nuancely. Our gross national product, though, looking at the numbers. Sweden is number one. We are number 21 if we look at the numbers percentage-wise and how much aid we give. Not number Interesting. Uh, but nevertheless, um, we are a country that's that's uh, very generous. Yes. Yeah. Uh, can you say something about what the Soza, Prager, and, yeah. and others have said about that? Is there any truth to what they're saying or are they yeah. very nationalistic and blinded by their own passions?
1: I, I think that, just like you said, there's a lot of truth to what they're saying. Um, and I think that that's a matter of... Um, Again, the historical record. Uh, but I would stop short. And so he says the best hope of earth or best hope of the world or something like that. That language comes from Abraham Lincoln, who called America the last best hope of earth. Mm-hmm. He, re- he referred to America in those terms on December 1st or December 2nd, 1862 in his annual message to Congress. Mm-hmm. And the context was the Civil War is raging. And he's trying to figure out a way to free the slaves in a way that will bring the seceded states back into the Union peacefully. Okay? okay. So that's the context. Okay. Reagan takes Lincoln's words, and he tweaks them. So Reagan said the last best hope of Earth. Or Lincoln said that. Reagan called America the last best hope of mankind. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. Now, as a Christian, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I believe that Jesus Christ is the best hope of mankind, humankind, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. As soon as we, I, I think, as soon as we say America is these great things, these exceptional things, positively, therefore, it is the best hope for the earth and for mankind, you a line, right? Yeah, yeah. That you cannot crawl. You, you know, the best hope of earth, best hope of mankind now we're talking about transcendence. And America's not transcendent. But politically speaking,
0: would it, were there any truth to it?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, like, th- think about this. Okay, was America the best hope of Kuwait in 1991 in the Gulf War? <laughs> well, it. we had a coalition of about 100 other countries that were helping us. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't have done it by ourselves. That's why George H.W. Bush built this great coalition. Mm-hmm. World War II, this is what everybody points back to. Did we beat the Nazis and the Japanese all by ourselves? France. Actually, the Russians.
0: Yeah. It was the
1: Russians that really defeated the Nazis. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that, that bore the brunt of the fighting mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Europe. There's no way America could have defeated the Nazis and the Japanese without the help of the French and the Russians and the British and the Greeks and you know, all these different groups. We could have done it by ourselves. World War One. we came in three, and a half, three years late. Hmm. You know, the war was a hopeless stalemate. We broke the stalemate. We lost 117,000 men in that war. The British lost 2 million men in that war. Hmm. The French lost 3 million men in that war. We lost 117,000. So are we the gr- best hope? No, we're not. We, we can't do anything without help, right? Now, are we very strong? Are we very powerful? Yeah. But it's all relative, right? Right now, in Alabama, He said uh, something. What did he say? His language was in existence now, or what did he say? Uh, the country. One,
0: uh, the country was was once an experiment. Is now unique in the world, and the last best hope for the world. In a desert of uh, it's a desert of goodness, and a desert, an, an oasis of goodness in a desert of cynicism and barbarism.
1: And so he says like this is the greatest country in the world didn't he say like now in existence or something like that right now Yes yes I feel like you, yeah okay well if this were 1897 mm. and we were in, and we were in Great Britain celebrating the 60th anniversary of the accession of Queen Victoria to the throne we would we would be in a position to say that Great Britain is the greatest country in the world the most powerful military, economic and social and religious influence in the world. Mm. I mean, the British in 1897 occupied the place that we occupy right now. Okay. So, you know, it's <laughs> exceptional is a term that d- it just demands, you know, sociological, historical, theological, economic explanation. Okay. Political. <laughs> then um, how um, could we avoid
0: how could we avoid beating the anti-American rhetoric we we'll say not only is America yeah. not the best hope for the world, but it's terrible. It's got to go. we got to abolish it. <laughs> Take the borders down. Take Burn the flag. Uh, I mean, there's extremes, of course. Uh, yeah. um, I mean, we don't want to go that route. So then there's some good in the country itself. Yeah. Can you comment about the good things that America has brought to the world
1: and continues to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. So, so in the book, I try to um, do this. I try to say, I try to constantly um, contrast two kinds of exceptionalism. One is, one is what I call closed, and the other is called open. You go to my next question. Yeah, go ahead. Very good, very good. So what I'm saying in my book is that the things that make America exceptional, the things that matter, that make us exceptional, are the ideas that we uh, were birthed into in the 18th century and then later in the 19th century after the Civil War. Ideas like a commitment to the individual rights of the human person, the dignity of the human freedom, the birthright of freedom that every single human person enjoys by, the, by virtue of the fact they're created by a God who has made them in His image, right? That's something that the, that the American experiment has always been committed to. Now, it's not something that we've been committed to evenly, and it's not something we've been committed to perfectly all through our history, but it's always been there at the very heart of who we are as a nation. And it's also inspired Americans to always try to be better than they are at every point in American history. So that's what really matters. And people the ironic thing is people who want to take down the American flag and people who want to bash on America, they're doing, they're doing those things on the currency of those ideas.
0: Right? That's right. Yeah yeah there are many people who come yeah i remember that i remember seeing a flag uh, excuse me a cartoon where they had somebody from a middle eastern part of the world my part of the world who was arguing Uh, with uh, a european from uh, the u.s and the european was saying in my country uh, we uh, we can disagree with our leaders and our religious elite we can critique them and the other gentleman says yes in my country we could do that to your leaders too (laughs)
1: that's funny man
0: of course the fairy found that yeah people come over here bash America but if you set up the same system that they had in their countries you wouldn't be able to bash anything you'll be like some of my relatives who are in jail for doing that yeah right. yeah there's well said there all right we're gonna have to wrap this up in the interest of time and um, of course you're interested okay. Let, any we final on words on any final words uh regarding this issue for our, our listeners any resources they can tap into of course i'll put uh, resources for your your excellent blog and your okay. uh, your Thank book you. and our show notes but uh, i'll leave the last words for you uh professor
1: yeah if, if you're interested John. in the um probably the best book i ever read on this topic as I was doing my research for the book. It's a book called The Intellectual Construction of America mm. by Jack Green, G-R-E-E-N-E. And he looks at the development of exceptionalism as an idea up to 1800, from 1492 up to 1800. And it's a beautifully written history, a uh, beautifully written intellectual history
0: mm-hmm.
1: of uh, the idea of exceptionalism. And I would I would commend that book to your reader, to your uh, listeners,
0: and uh, give us uh, your blog uh, post as well. Your-
1: uh, the blog is uh, to breathe your free air, and it's um, JohnDWilsey.com, a very, uh, a very humble uh, website uh, web address. <laughs> JohnDWilsey.com, which is me. So. And you got the <laughs> and you got
0: the term to breathe your jaw free air from.
1: Yeah, that's a letter from uh, James Madison uh-huh. uh, to his friend Wade Bradford of Pennsylvania. Yeah.
0: Fascinating, we look into that. Well, listen, I really, John, I really appreciate your time and uh, enlightening yeah. us here with this fascinating information as we move uh, forward. Thank yeah, you so thank much. You. Okay, all right, God bless. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, go ahead and sign up at logicallyfaithful.com where you'll receive a free book on blind spots of science 10 things science cannot do, in addition to getting uh, resources and other about what the work we're doing for Logical Faithful. Go and make the world a better place. One life.